you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, we're reading verses 51 to 62. Here is God's Word. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire uh, or tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And he went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those of my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Thus we end the reading of God's word. Uh, Please be seated. That's the Lord's blessing. Lord, as we look at this passage of scripture, Lord, where indeed, as we sang this morning, that you lead us, Lord, there were disciples who wanted to follow you, Lord. So we see ourselves in those disciples as well, Lord. I pray, God, you would help us to not just read these words as dead, empty words of years ago, but, Lord, as living words addressed to us for our same problems we have in following you are addressed here, Lord. I pray, God, you would use this word and apply it to our lives and to our hearts that we are affected by it, Lord. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we come back to chapter 9 in Luke this morning, a a new section as well. And uh, it's perhaps possible, I don't know, to me it seems, you know, the chapter divisions in our Bible are not inspired, you know that. They were put in much later. Um, And it seems to me that perhaps the chapter division would have been better uh, there at verse 51. That's my own uh, view from reading the text and looking at it uh, this week. Uh, But here, for almost now until the next ten chapters, we're entering a part of Luke where almost all the material that is given to us is material that is only found in Luke. Now, there's a little bit of exception to that, but most of it is is only found here in this particular gospel. Up to this point, Luke has been mostly following the pattern set by Mark, and uh, he has been telling the basic same story of Mark, but now he veers from that and begins to tell us things that we wouldn't find if it wasn't for him. There's some good things in here, of course. The parable of the Good Samaritan we wouldn't have if we didn't have this section of Luke. The story of Mary and Martha and who's doing the better thing and serving in the household. The great parable of the prodigal son, and I could go on and on. There's many things here that are very, very important. But it starts, the whole section starts with a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is important to Luke. James Edwards points out that in nearly two-thirds of the 143 references to Jerusalem in the New Testament, of those 143 references, two-thirds are found in Luke and Acts, in Luke's writings. So Luke is 
concerned about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Jesus is headed. Jerusalem is where all the prophetic scriptures that have to do with the suffering servant and the Messiah are going to come to fruition in Jerusalem. That's where it's all going to take place. Jesus says in Luke 18.31, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man the prophets, uh, in the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus said it's all going to happen in Jerusalem. Earlier in the account, we read in the Mount of Transfiguration in this chapter that Moses and Elijah were talking to him about his departure, which was going to happen at Jerusalem. In the chapters that follow, can you guess how many references there might be about Jesus needing to go to Jerusalem? You can just think in your mind what that number might be. If you said seven, you've been paying attention the last few months. That's good. Congratulations. Two of them are here in this chapter, verses 51 and 53. We have these. And if we also were going to ask in the chapters ahead, how many references are there going to be to Jesus having to suffer or to his passion? Again, think in your mind, if you came up with the number seven, you would be correct. We have it here in verses 17 and 18, and uh, there are one. Here, excuse me. We have one here in this chapter. We have uh, in one 17 and 18 chapters, and also four references in chapter 24. So now Jesus and his disciples are going on a road trip. That's what they're going to be doing in these next chapters: is traveling on the way. But there are references that Luke will give us to tell us they're traveling places, but he doesn't always tell us where those places are. He'll just identify them as certain villages or towns. And in 17.12, he says he enters into a certain village, but he doesn't identify. In 13.22, he says he goes through the villages and the towns uh, teaching, but he doesn't identify what they are. But this is the travelogue section of Luke that begins here. So then we'll look now at verses 51 to 56. We have a word here that is only found in this verse, one verse here in the entire New Testament. It's found nowhere else. It is the Greek word analepsis. The King James translates it as his being received up. The ESV translated, translates it as his being taken up. It's not exactly clear what Luke is referring to here. The NIV, which is not my favorite version, I know some of you probably uh, like it. Um, I, I remember Leonard Ravenhill used to say it stood for the nasty, ignorant version, but uh, that's just one man's opinion, not ours. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing anybody that's using the NIV, but um, I, I, it's not one of my favorites. But anyway, uh, it adds, it says, taken up to heaven. Now that's not there in the original. The NIV adds those words, but... In favor of the NIV, um, this is a noun, but the verb form of this word is found 13 times, not 7, but 13 times in the New Testament. And out of those 13 times, 6 times, it obviously refers to Jesus being taken up into heaven. In fact, 4 of those references, the word heaven, is uh, is even found. But what is it that Luke is referring to? Is taken up. Is it his ascension? That might seem the obvious choice. Others would say it is referring to his resurrection. Some even say it refers to his cross. It says, I be lifted up. I will draw all men unto me. That it could refer to that as well. 
But the point is that we're looking forward to what's going to happen. And the cross is just a prelude to the exaltation, to the resurrection, to the ascension that's going to happen. And uh, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But then we have another phrase. The ESV says, he set his face. The NIV says, he resolutely set out. The King James says, he steadfastly set his face. This is probably in reference to an Old Testament scripture in Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. It's telling us that from now on, Jesus has one main purpose. And that purpose is to go to Jerusalem and fulfill the prophecies by suffering and dying. And this is emphasized here in three consecutive verses. Verse 51, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. 52, he set messengers before his face. 53, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. The word face appears there in all three of those verses. And so in verse 52, Jesus at least sends some of his disciples out on a mission. It is to go ahead into the area of Samaria and to make a way for Christ to go. And again, the text says he sent messengers before his face. That phrase might seem familiar to you because that was spoken of earlier as John the Baptist, the messenger set before his face uh, to, uh, to be the prelude to Christ. Uh, but here, now it is also referring to these disciples who are now taking the place of John the Baptist, and they are preparing the way for Christ. Now, you might be familiar with the fact there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. And... Um, John puts it in his gospel in verses four or chapter four, verse nine. He says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's putting it mildly. When they wanted to insult Jesus, when the Jews wanted to insult Jesus, what did they say to him? They said two things. Number one, you have a demon. Number two, you're a Samaritan. Because that's like the lowest insult they could come up with. The worst thing they could say about somebody was they have a demon or they're a Samaritan. The origin of the Samaritans, I tried to do a bit of research on this. I, I found it wasn't exactly clear. Exactly, there were differences of opinions on this particular subject. Some say the Samaritans were half-breeds, that they were the Jews who stayed behind uh, with after the Assyrian captivity instead of going back, and they intermarried uh, with the Assyrians, and uh, therefore their descendants were referred to as Samaritans. One reference said this, to the Jews, the Samaritans were strangers and were regarded with supreme contempt. The scribes had an especial dislike for them. The Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues and a petition was daily offered up praying God that the Samaritans might not be partakers. The testimony of a Samaritan was inadmissible in Jewish courts. Another writer said that during the time of the New Testament, some Samaritans managed to sneak into the Jerusalem temple where they strewed human bones around. Kent Hughes comments, This made both the Jews and Samaritans regret that life was so short. There was so much to hate and so little time. There's a lot of hate going on. In the apocryphal book of Sirach, it says in chapter 50 there of 25 and 26, there be two manner of nations which my heart abhors, 
And the third is no nation. They that sit upon the mountain of Samaria and they that dwell among the Philistines and, reference the Samaritans here, the stupid people that dwell in Sychem. You can see how the Samaritans were looked at. You might remember in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, when the Samaritans offered to help the Jews in building up uh, the Jerusalem, the temple and the wall, they were refused to do that. Then during the Maccabean period, between the Testaments, one of the Maccabeans actually went up on Mount Gerizim and destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. And so when the Jews were seeking to go to Jerusalem, and Samaria was the quickest way to get there, the Samaritans made it very difficult. They didn't want them going to Jerusalem. They wanted to keep them from the feast. And so that's what's going on here with Jesus here. That's why it says they didn't receive him because his face was as though he'd go to Jerusalem. They don't want him to go there. They don't want him celebrating the feast there because their temple has been destroyed. So, of course, the normal response to somebody saying you're not welcome at their house or their place would be what you'd probably do, which is call fire from heaven down on them, right? That's, that seems pretty normal. Well, that's at least what the Sons of Thunder uh, came up with. One old writer said, What wonder the Sons of Thunder wanted lightning out of heaven to burn up the village. What wonder. The King James has an extra phrase here. So if you have a King James version, you saw things in your text that wasn't in the one that I read to you. It says at the end of their asking uh, to call fire down, it adds, has Elijah or Elias did. And so that was added in there. And, of course, this would make sense, actually, for it to be here. And when we think about it, even the response of James and John, because, again, where had they just come from? They had just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was up at the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah was up there. So, of course, why wouldn't they think about that at this particular time? And uh, so, so they're, they're wanting to do that. They're wanting to call that fire down, uh, just like Elijah did. Remember when, when the king sent to Elijah a company of 50 men, he called fire down from heaven and destroyed them. And then the king sent another 50, and he called fire down from heaven and, and burnt them up. And then he sent another 50, and he said, hey, hey, please, please, don't, don't burn us up. We're just doing what the king told us to do. And, and uh, he, they, uh, Elijah showed mercy to them and actually went with them at that time. So they have legal precedent for what they're asking to do. So what does our Lord think of this idea? Apparently not much. We're told in verse 55, he rebukes them for this suggestion. That's a strong word in the New Testament, rebuke. It's the word used of Jesus when he speaks against the storm. He rebukes the storm. It's the word used when he comes in contact with demons and says he rebukes the demons. That is the word that is there. So this isn't just a slight tap on the wrist. Now, again, you'll notice in the King James, uh, or notice in the ESV perhaps, that the ESV is a lot shorter. There's a lot that isn't there. The ESV simply says, he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The King James says, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save. Now, Whether those words should be there or not, there is dispute. But I think they could easily have been there. And I think that makes perfect sense. 
Because Jesus speaks of that in other places. He says in John 12, 47, I didn't come to judge the world, but in order to save the world. Later in chapter 19 of this book, in verse 10, you'll say, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. But of course, James and John might have remembered some words Jesus had spoken earlier in Luke, chapter 6, when he said, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. James will say later in chapter 1 and verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So verse 56 says they go on to another village, but again, Luke doesn't tell us what this village is. It tells us they're moving on. So again, we're reminded they're on a road trip, and on the road they meet someone who says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a very honorable statement to make. That is, that is a very wonderful statement. We used to have a hymn, when I grew up, we had a hymn in our hymn book, maybe didn't have in yours, but it, the song said, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. That was the, the title of the song. That's what this man says, I'll go. Like Ruth said to Naomi in the first chapter, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. He's the first of three men that Jesus and the disciples meet in this section. And the interesting thing Matthew tells us that Luke omits here is that this man is a scribe. Now the scribes were not in general the people that wanted to follow Jesus, just the opposite. The answer of Jesus to this plea of the man is somewhat surprising. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, are you ready to be homeless? Are you ready to give up comforts to follow me? Are you, are you going uh, to do that? Now, there were times Jesus did have a place to lay his head. When he was in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at Bethany, for example, he had a place to lay his head. When he was at Capernaum, where Peter's house was, and he'd stayed at Peter's house, he had a place to stay uh, or to lay his head. But the point is, you never really knew where you were going to be with Christ. You never really knew, you know, if you were going to have a good place to sleep or not. When my kids were all younger, we had this old, um, I don't even remember, I think it was a Chevrolet station wagon, one of those old beaters uh, that we had. And, and I would sometimes come home and say, uh, okay, kids, everybody in the car, we're going. And, and tell them to all get in the car. And uh, the kids would go, well, where are we going? What are we going to do? Where are we going? And we had a phrase, well, I had a phrase that kind of came into our family lore, and I'd say, you never know with Daddy. You'd never know where you were going to go. And sometimes we went to a restaurant or sometimes to a park or somewhere, usually somewhere good anyway. Uh, but that became a phrase that uh, exists to this day in our family. And that's the idea. You never know with Jesus. Where are you going to go? We don't know. We have no idea. You're just going to be following him. That's all you're going to be doing. One old spiritual song said, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Or if you're into Christian music in the 60s and 70s, we're only visiting this planet. In the 59 and verse 60, we have another encounter. This time it's Jesus who initiates the encounter. He says to what uh, he'd said to some of his other disciples earlier, he simply said, follow me. Now the response of the man is not clear. And there is division exactly what he's trying to say here. 
What he says, I mean, the words are clear. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That's, that's clear. But what does that mean? That's where the commentators differ. And we don't know for sure what that means because we're not given to it. Some say the response of the man to Christ doesn't mean that his father had just died. In other words, he wasn't saying, Lord, my father just died and a funeral and I, I want to go to that and then I'll follow you. But they'll say he's not, that's not what he's saying. In G. Campbell Morgan's commentary, I found a story that related to Dr. George Adam Smith. He said when he was in Palestine, he particularly desired to get a certain man to act as his guide in one of those journeys into his unknown regions. And he was startled when the man said to him in actual words, Suffer me first to go and bury my father. His father was alive and hale and hearty. What the man went was, I have home ties and responsibilities, and I cannot break them. Some say that's what this man meant. He wasn't saying his father died. He was simply saying that he was going to stay around until his father died, and then he would bury him. Others say, no, he's saying that the father had indeed just died. But it seems like if that's the case, the words of Jesus are quite harsh and might even go against the tradition and maybe even the words of God. The fifth commandment tells us we are to honor our father and mother. And the burial of one's parents was looked upon in those days as one, perhaps the highest honor you could do for your parents was to bury them. But Luke, or Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Now, it's interesting because Jesus condemned specifically at one point the practice of the Pharisees for having Corbin. Now, if you didn't know what Corbin was, Corbin was this thing where the, the Pharisees could say, if a parent said to them, son, we're very much in need, we don't have enough for food for this week, and, and we're, we're, we're starving and we need food, can you please give us some money? That the Pharisee could say, I'd love to do that because I have some money, but it's Corbin, which meant I already dedicated this money to God, and therefore I cannot give it to you. Now Jesus condemned that practice, saying it was not in fulfillment of the commandment to honor the father and mother. So it would seem funny for him to say this here. But he says, let the dead bury the dead. What he means, of course, is let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Once again, Matthew tells us something that Luke doesn't, he said, at the time of Jesus saying this, Matthew tells us, he and his disciples were just getting into a boat to go. So in a sense, Jesus could be saying, hey, it's now or never. The boat's leaving. You know, I know when we're on a cruise, they say you get back by 4 o'clock, and if you're not back, find your own way to the boat, because we're not staying. And that's perhaps what Jesus would say. It's, if you want to follow me, it's now or never. You, don't, you can't wait, you can't do anything. You've got to come because I'm leaving right now. And perhaps that is it. And the other question we might ask here before we leave this man is, if he was so concerned about the burial of his father, what's he doing out with Jesus now? First place, what's, what's he doing there? Why, is, why isn't he home taking care of those things? Something for us to think about. The last account is verses 61 and 62. This man says he will follow Christ, but he wants to say farewell to his relatives who are at home response of Jesus is no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, that seems harsh. Now, we even have a biblical story that even would give credence to what this man is asking. In the story when Elijah calls Elisha back in 1 Kings chapter 19, 
After he, de- after he calls Elisha and tells him to come and to follow him, Elisha asks if he can go back and kiss his father and his mother. And Elijah says, go ahead. And he does. And then he comes back and follows Elijah. So there is a precedent for doing this. So again, unclear. Several things are unclear in this account that we might want to ask. One thing we find out, though, as we start to apply the text this morning, is seems very clear, is that Jesus' approach to these men is very different than most of the church's approach in modern evangelism. If someone is at all interested in the gospel, we are all over them. Oh, fill out this card. Pray this prayer with me. Lift your hand up. Just do something. We're going to do this. But Jesus, instead of encouraging those to follow him, actually seems to discourage them from doing that. Particularly in the first instance. The man that was a scribe. I mean, why would this? This is like a coup, right? This is taking somebody from the enemy camp and bringing him into the realm of your disciples. Why wouldn't you want this man above all else? Say, look, we got a scribe. When I was in uh, high school and, and college, uh, some of you are of my age group, so you can perhaps remember this. The the most famous atheist in the world was a woman named Madeline Murray O'Hare, and some of you may may remember that. When I was in Sacramento, California, I went to a lecture of hers. And she said a line that stays in my mind. I'm not going to give it to you because it's vile. Uh, but I, I listened to her lecture about, about atheism. But the interesting thing is she had a son. Her son she used as a plaintiff. She was the one that brought the lawsuit to take prayer and Bible reading out of the public schools. And she used her son as the plaintiff in that account. Well, as an adult, her son that she used converted to Christianity. He's still, to this day, a Baptist minister. And uh, that was a big deal, you know? I mean, I remember telling all kinds, yeah, uh, she was an atheist, and she was her son, and her son's now a believer. We got a cool, we got somebody from the enemy's camp, we, we got him here. Well, this is a very similar case, it seems to be, but, but Jesus doesn't jump at the chance. In fact, he seems to drive the man away from what he's doing. And the words might almost seem harsh to us. And we might wonder, Lord, what, what, what are you doing here? It seems like you've got some willing followers. Why are you being so discouraging? And the words can seem harsh to us. But there's one thing we have to remember. The Lord knows something we don't know. The Lord knows the hearts of these men. And he knows exactly what he should say, and what these men need to hear. Now, what's interesting, I said, stuff's not here. We don't know if these guys followed Jesus or not, do we? never tells us. We don't get the response. We don't know what they said to what Jesus said. Did they get in the boat? They follow him? We don't know. We're not sure. Maybe they walked away sadly, as the rich young ruler did. I'll come back to this, but I want to go back to the first part of our text this morning first. James and John wanted to call fire down on the village of Samaria. Now, sometimes our gut response, even though we might think it might go along with Scripture, isn't always the best response. J.C. Ryle says, It's possible to have much zeal for Christ, and yet to exhibit it in a most unholy and unchristian way. 
It's possible to mean well and have good intentions and yet to make the most grievous mistakes in our actions. It's possible to imagine we have scripture on our side and support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet to commit serious errors. He goes on and says this, It is as clear as daylight from this and other cases related in the Bible. It's not good enough to be zealous and well-meaning. Very grave faults are frequently committed with good intentions. From no quarter has the church perhaps received so much injury as from ignorant but well-meaning men. As I read that quote, I was reminded of something that uh, happened to me in Bible college. And we were given some kind of assignment for class. I don't remember the class. I don't even remember the assignment. And I don't even remember why we came up with this idea. But a friend of mine decided we were going to do a study to find out if you were witnessing for Christ, would it matter if you had a beard or not? The world's waiting for the results of that study, of course. So, so we put this fake beard and mustache on me, and I went out to the tallest building in Minneapolis, the IDS Tower, and I went down in there to find people whom I could share Christ with to see if what the beard would have the effect on. And I remember the first guy that I came up to it's that I don't remember if I said you want would you like to talk to me about Jesus or whatever I said, but he did want to talk, and we started talking and having this long conversation. And the whole time I'm doing it, all I'm thinking of is is this stupid beard even look real? What what is it looking? At? Is it going to fall off in the middle of this conversation? And I'm not thinking clearly, and I'm not giving good answers to this guy. To this day, I'm just wondering whatever happened to that guy. You know, uh, did he did he follow Christ? I I don't know. I, but but I, I thought well that was stupid. I don't even know what the result of that project was or anything. But I remember that particular day. But it was zeal, doing things in zeal that we think are really good things and and uh, commendable things, but they're not always that way. Paul says to the Romans in chapter ten and verse two concerning the Jews, I bear them witness. Witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, I'm going to be honest with you for a moment. I think most, I was going to say sometimes, I, I think most of the time, I prefer zeal over knowledge. You know, I think, I, you can teach knowledge. It's hard to teach zeal. It's hard, it's hard to get people that, to have zeal. But it is better to have both. Let me, let me just say that. But I want to say something else about the response of James and John as they said, let's call fire down from heaven. I want to say this. Something that we've done in the past It doesn't have to define us forever. James and John were called the sons of thunder. From our text, we'd say, yep, seems about right. Seems like a good appellation for them. Let's call fire down from heaven, destroy the whole village. Now that's the kind of statement that could define somebody all their life. They could be known by that. Oh, you're the guys that wanted to call the fire down, right? That could be the way it was. But let me ask you this. When you think of the Apostle John, what do you think of? I would guess most of you this morning thought the Apostle of Love. He's the Apostle of Love. He's the one that wrote about love over and over again. His gospel's filled with love. His epistle's filled with love. He talks about love, 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 love. That's John. So we learn that that one act didn't define him. What's really precious to me in this story 
Is this apostle that wanted to call fire down from heaven? In Acts 8, he goes through the village of Samaria preaching the gospel. Lesson learned. We don't know if it was the same village, but nevertheless, I think it tells us something about John. So let me close by saying, how did the three encounters of this chapter affect us? Do we have to live the way Jesus is asking these men to live? The problem with these men, if we could just sum it up perhaps in one, is they wanted to negotiate. I remember a story I heard years ago. A man said to someone, would you steal that little thing in there for me if I gave you a million dollars? The man goes, for a million dollars? Yeah, I think I would. He said, would you steal that thing in me for 50 cents? The guy says, well, you think I'm a thief? He says, we've established what you are. Now we're negotiating. Well, this man wants to negotiate. All these men want to in some way. Let me go do this. Let me, let me, let me do this instead. Let me, let me do this. We always want to negotiate with God. There was a movie years ago, not recommending a movie. It was called The End. It was about a man who did uh, keep wanting to kill himself. And at the end of the movie, he goes uh, swimming out into the ocean. And he's swimming out because he's failed in every attempt so far. So he knows if he just swims out so far, he'll die. There's nothing can be done. So he's swimming out to the ocean. And he gets out about as far as he thinks he can go. And all of a sudden, he realizes he didn't want to die. And so he starts, turns around and starts swimming back to the shore. And he's swimming back to the shore. He's negotiating with God. God, if you let me live, I'll, do, I'll, I'll serve you. He says, he starts off by saying, if, if you do this, I'll keep every one of the Ten Commandments. And then he says he'll be honest in business. And then he says that, that if God helps him as he's getting closer and closer, he says, I'll, get, I'll give you 50% of my business. Everything, 50% of it I'll give to you. But then as he gets closer, it's like, and he realizes he's going to make it. He goes, 10%, 10% God. I'm going to, and he negotiates down. Well, that's the way a lot of people want to do it with God. We want to negotiate it down. The third man starts what seems to be a pretty good position. Let, let me say goodbye to those that are at home. But all of them are negotiating. The U.S. savings bond says on it, non-negotiable. Well, that's what discipleship following Christ is, non-negotiable. The old song I told you about that I don't really mind very much is I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. J.C. Ryle said those who look back want to go back. Lot's wife looked back. She wanted to go back. Ryle said if we're looking back at anything in this world, we're not fit to be disciples. I remember vividly a time I was in my parents' basement with my then-girlfriend, I guess, I won't tell you who she was, but she's here in the congregation this morning. And I remember I said to her, I said, you know, I, I wasn't proposing, but I said, if you married me, I said, would, would you marry me if, if my desire was to be a pastor? And she said, yes. And I said, would you marry me if I want to be a missionary and go to some foreign country? She said, yes. And I said, would you marry me if I'm going to be a ditch digger? She said, yes. 
and I've taken her to the cold plains of North Dakota, the streets of Sacramento, California, to cities to plant churches, and I've even taken her to Janesville, Wisconsin. And she's followed me wherever I went. I don't know where we're going next. But the question we have to ask is, Lord, what do you require me as a follower, as a disciple? It's a good self-examining question we can ask this morning during communion. Philip Ryken talks about the advice John Wesley gave to people when they asked how to follow Jesus. He said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. James Boyce said, it's true that Jesus may never ask us to break with our families for his sake, or as in the case of the rich young man, sell all we have and give to the poor and come and follow him. Indeed, in the great majority of cases, this is not required at all. But we must be willing to obey in these or any other area if Jesus asks, and we must do it if we can, or if he asked it. Not if we can, but if he asked us. He calls us to a life of repentance. We talked about Luther in Sunday school for a while. I didn't remember this. Maybe you remember it. The very first thesis of the 95 that Luther put on the door of the chapel when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance Kent Hughes says if your Christianity has not brought discomfort to your life something's wrong let me quickly close just a short story William Borden was the heir of a very wealthy Chicago family in 1904 1905 at the age of 18 he traveled around the world and he went to Yale, Princeton, where he committed his life to seek to win Muslims in China to Christ. Before he left, he gave away, at that time, $500,000, which would be equivalent now to probably $20 million, thereabouts. And he served at the age of 23 as a trustee of Moody Bible Institute. In his 26th year, in 1913, he left for Egypt and never looked back. That would be the final year of his life. Because in Cairo, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And as he lay dying, he scribbles this note. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. That's what Christ calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the call that comes to each of us that says, follow me. And Lord, we don't know even yet what all that will entail. But help us to be willing to do whatever that might be. And Lord, perhaps you're speaking to hearts this morning that are not even following you. And Lord, I pray that they would trust their life to Christ. They would go to the cross, receive forgiveness, and follow you wherever you might lead. Lord, maybe there's missionaries here today that you're calling. Who knows? But God, help us. Help us to trust in you, to follow you wherever you lead us. We know we're not saved by our works. We're saved only by your death and by dying for our sins. But Lord, we want to follow you. I pray you'd help us to follow you and to go wherever you lead us. And help us, Lord, to be faithful. This is what you ask of us, not to be saved, but because we are saved. And we may be faithful. If possible, call someone into your kingdom this morning, Lord. 
I will lay everything there and trust only in you and in your death and your blood for their salvation. But call others, Lord, to where you want them to serve. For we pray this now in Christ's glorious name. Amen.